This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and Chapters 3 and 4 from Agatha Christie's The Murder of Roger Eckroyd. For your convenience, I'll remind you a little bit of the past and bring you a little bit into the future before we begin Chapter 3. At the time of her death, Mrs. Ferrars had been seen another of Dr. Shepard's patients, the wealthy widower Roger Ackroyd, and the townspeople expected them to announce plans to marry. Roger had also lost his spouse to alcoholism 21 years prior, leaving him to raise her son from a previous marriage, Ralph Patton, whom Roger adopted. Also living with Roger at his Fernley Park estate are his late brother's widow, Mrs. Cecil Ackroyd, and her daughter Flora. His main staff includes Secretary Jeffrey Raymond, housekeeper Miss Russell, butler Parker, parlor maid Ursula Bourne, and housemaid Elsie Dale. On the evening of September 17th, Roger Ackroyd invites Dr. Shepard to dinner to consult with him about a matter causing him much distress. After dinner, they retire to Roger's study to confer privately. Roger tells Dr. Shepard that he had been engaged to Mrs. Ferrars for three months. The day before her death, she confessed to him that she had poisoned her husband. Ashley Ferrars was being blackmailed and would reveal the name of the blackmailer in 24 hours' time. At that point, Parker delivers a blue envelope with Mrs. Farrar's handwriting, and Roger reads aloud to Dr. Shepard her suicide note. But Roger abruptly stops reading aloud before Mrs. Farrar's reveals the name of the blackmailer. And while we're here, I wanted to clear up a few other details regarding this story, which is the third Christie mystery to feature our hero, Hercule Poirot. First, Poirot appears in this story as the newly retired neighbor of our narrator a neighbor who is dedicated to his garden and the growing of the perfect marrows. Aha! What is a marrow, you Americans ask? It's a fruit used as a vegetable. We call it zucchini here in the U.S. Giant marrows are grown for competition in the U.K., sort of like how we grow giant pumpkins here in the States. Now, Poirot's name appears spelled differently in The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. It appears as P-O-R-R-O-T, not P-O-I-R-O-T, as it does elsewhere. And it's pronounced so far in this story like Poro by our narrator. But we know that on all the TV shows and movies that Poro is pronounced Hercule Poirot. But for the sake of the story's narrator, I'm using Poro because that's how he knows him. If and when Poro introduces himself, I'll change to the more accurate pronunciation. Also, to one of my reviewers from a few weeks ago who said I have a terrible British accent, I should add that I don't use one. My accent is no accent. I'm defined as Midwestern, as close to no accent as an American can get. And we have many accents here. In the case of Sherlock Holmes, I may give Holmes a unique voice, yes, but I'm not trying to affect a British accent. I studiously avoid trying to cop a British accent. Sometimes I'll do a minor character or a butler and I just try to do it for fun. 
I've thought about hiring a voice coach, but I don't have the time to spend half my day repeating, The rain in Spain falls mainly on the plain. Oh, and as for Poirot's accent, I am not David Suchet. I'm just doing the best I can. So please bear with me. Anyway, I'm doing this because I really love good literature, and Dame Christie is really fun to narrate. And now, our story. And now we begin Chapter 3 of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. The Man Who Grew Vegetable Marrows I told Caroline at lunchtime that I should be dining at Fernley. She expressed no objection. On the contrary. Excellent, she said. You'll hear all about it. By the way, what is the trouble with Ralph? With Ralph? I said, surprised. There isn't any. Then why is he staying at the Three Boars instead of at Fernley Park? I did not for a minute question Caroline's statement that Ralph Patton was staying at the local inn. That Caroline said so was enough for me. Ackroyd told me he was in London, I said. In the surprise of the moment, I departed from my valuable rule of never parting with information. Oh, said Caroline. I could see her nose twitching as she worked on this. He arrived at the Three Boars yesterday morning, she said. And he's still there. Last night he was out with a girl. That didn't surprise me in the least. Ralph, I should say, is out with a girl most nights of his life. But I did rather wonder that he chose to indulge in the pastime in King's Abbot instead of in the gay metropolis. One of the barmaids? I asked. No, that's just it. He went out to meet her. I don't know who she is. Bitter for Caroline to have to admit such a thing. But I can guess, continued my indefatigable sister. I waited patiently. His cousin... "'Flora Ackroyd?' I exclaimed in surprise. "'Flora Ackroyd is, of course, no relation whatever, really, to Ralph Patton, "'but Ralph has been looked upon for so long as practically Ackroyd's own son "'that cousinship is taken for granted.' "'Flora Ackroyd,' said my sister. "'But why not go to Fernley if you wanted to see her?' "'Secretly engaged,' said Caroline, with immense enjoyment. "'Old Ackroyd won't hear of it. "'and they have to meet this way.' "'I saw a good many flaws in Caroline's theory, "'but I forbore to point them out to her. "'An innocent remark about our new neighbor created a diversion. "'The house next door, the Larches, "'has recently been taken by a stranger. "'To Caroline's extreme annoyance, "'she has not been able to find out anything about him "'except that he is a foreigner. "'The Intelligence Corps has proved a broken reed.' Presumably, the man has milk and vegetables and joints of meat and occasional whitings, just like everybody else, but none of the people who make it their business to supply these things seem to have acquired any information. His name, apparently, is Mr. Poro, a man which conveys an odd feeling of unreality. The one thing we do know about him is that he is interested in the growing of vegetable marrows, but that is certainly not the sort of information that Caroline is after. She wants to know where he comes from, what he does, whether he is married, what his wife was or is like, whether he has children, what his mother's maiden name was, and so on. Somebody very like Caroline must have invented the questions on passports, I think. My dear Caroline, I said, there's no doubt at all about what the man's profession has been. He's a retired hairdresser. Look at that mustache of his. Caroline dissented. She said that if the man was a hairdresser, he would have wavy hair, not straight. All hairdressers did. I cited several hairdressers personally known to me who had straight hair. 
"'but Caroline refused to be convinced. "'I can't make him out at all,' she said in an aggrieved voice. "'I borrowed some garden tools the other day, "'and he was most polite, but I couldn't get anything out of him. "'I asked him point-blank at last whether he was a Frenchman, "'and he said he wasn't, "'and somehow I didn't like to ask him any more. "'I began to be more interested in our mysterious neighbor, "'a man who was capable of shutting up Caroline and sending her— "'like the Queen of Sheba, empty away, "'must be something of a personality. "'I believe,' said Caroline, "'that he's got one of those new vacuum cleaners.' "'I saw a meditated loan "'and the opportunity of further questioning "'gleaming from her eye. "'I seized the chance to escape into the garden. "'I am rather fond of gardening. "'I was busily exterminating dandelion roots "'when a shout of warning sounded from close by, "'and a heavy body whizzed by my ear "'and fell at my feet with a repellent squelch. "'It was a vegetable marrow. "'I looked up angrily. "'Over the wall, to my left, there appeared a face, "'an egg-shaped head, partially covered with suspiciously black hair, two immense mustaches, and a pair of watchful eyes. "'It was our mysterious neighbor, Mr. Poro. "'He broke at once into fluent apologies. "'I demand of you a thousand pardons, monsieur. "'I am without defense. "'For some months now I cultivate the marrows.' "'This morning, suddenly, I enraged myself with these matters. "'I beat them to promenade themselves. "'Alas, not only mentally, but physically. "'I seize the biggest. "'I hurl him over the wall. "'Monsieur, I am ashamed. "'I prostrate myself.' "'Before such profuse apologies, "'my anger was forced to melt. "'After all, the wretched vegetable hadn't hit me. "'But I certainly hoped that throwing large vegetables over walls "'was not our new friend's hobby.' Such a habit could hardly endear him to us as a neighbor. The strange little man seemed to read my thoughts. "'Ah, no!' he exclaimed. "'Do not disquiet yourself. It is not with me a habit. But can you figure to yourself, monsieur, that a man may work work towards a certain object, may labor and toil to attain a certain kind of leisure and occupation, and then find that, after all, he yearns for the old busy days,' "'and the old occupations that he thought himself so glad to leave.' "'Yes,' I said slowly. "'I fancy that that is a common enough occurrence. "'I myself and perhaps an instance. "'A year ago I came into a legacy, "'enough to enable me to realize a dream. "'I've always wanted to travel, to see the world. "'Well, that was a year ago, as I said. "'And I'm still here.' "'My little neighbor nodded. "'The chains of habit.' We work to attain an object, and the object gains, we find that what we miss is the daily toil. And mark you, monsieur, my work was interesting work, the most interesting work there is in the world. Yes, I said encouragingly. For the moment, the spirit of Caroline was strong within me. The study of human nature, monsieur. Just so, I said kindly. Clearly retired hairdresser. "'Who knows the secrets of human nature better than a hairdresser? "'Also, I had a friend, a friend who for many years never left my side. "'Occasionally, of an imbecility to make one afraid, "'nevertheless he was very dear to me. "'Figure to yourself that I miss even his stupidity. "'His naivete, his honest outlook, "'the pleasure of delighting and surprising him by my superior gifts, "'all these I miss more than I can tell you. "'He died?' I asked sympathetically. Not so. He lives and flourishes, but on the other side of the world. He is now in the Argentine. In the Argentine? 
I said enviously. I have always wanted to go to South America. I sighed, and then looked up to find Mr. Poro eyeing me sympathetically. He seemed an understanding little man. You will go there, yes? he asked. I shook my head with a sigh. I could have gone, I said, a year ago, but I was foolish, and worse than foolish, greedy. I risked the substance for the shadow. I comprehend, said Mr. Poro. You speculated. I nodded mournfully, but in spite of myself I felt secretly entertained. This ridiculous little man was so portentously solemn. Not the porcupine oil fields, he said suddenly. I stared. I thought of them, as a matter of fact, but in the end I plumped for a gold mine in Western Australia. My neighbor was regarding me with a strange expression which I could not fathom. It is fate, he said at last. What is fate? I asked irritably. That I should live next to a man who seriously considers porcupine oil fields and also West Australian gold mines. Tell me, have you also a pension for auburn hair? I stared at him open-mouthed, and he burst out laughing. No, no, it is not the insanity that I suffer from. Make your mind easy. It was a foolish question that I put to you there, for see you, my friend of whom I spoke was a young man, a man who thought all women good, and most of them beautiful. But you are a man of middle age, a doctor, a man who knows the folly and the vanity of most things in this life of ours. Well, well, we are neighbors. I beg of you to accept and present to your excellent sister my best marrow. He stooped, and with a flourish produced an immense specimen of the tribe, which I duly accepted in the spirit in which it was offered. Indeed, said the little man cheerfully, this has not been a wasted morning. I have made the acquaintance of a man who in some ways resembles my far-up friend. By the way, I should like to ask you a question. You doubtless know everyone in this tiny village. Who is the young man with the very dark hair and eyes and the handsome face? He walks with his head flung back and an easy smile on his lips. The description left me in no doubt. That must be Captain Ralph Patton, I said slowly. I have not seen him here before. No, he has not been here for some time. But he is the son, of the adopted son, rather, of Mr. Ackroyd of Fernley Park. My neighbor made a slight gesture of impatience. Of course, I should have guessed. Mr. Ackroyd spoke of him many times. You know Mr. Ackroyd? I said, slightly surprised. Mr. Ackroyd knew me in London, when I was at work there. I have asked him to say nothing in my profession down here. I see, I said. "'rather amused by this patent snobbery, as I thought it. "'But the little man went on with an almost grandiloquent smirk. "'One prefers to remain incognito. "'I am not anxious for notoriety. "'I have not even troubled to correct the local version of my name.' "'Indeed,' I said, not knowing quite what to say. "'Captain Ralph Patton,' mused Mr. Poro. "'And so he is engaged to Mr. Ackroyd's niece?' "'the charming Miss Flora.' "'Who told you so?' I asked, very much surprised. "'Mr. Ackroyd, about a week ago. "'He is very pleased about it, "'has long desired that such a thing should come to pass. "'Or so I understood from him. "'I even believe that he brought some pressure to bear upon the young man. 
"'That is never wise. "'A young man should marry to please himself, "'not to please a stepfather from whom he has expectations.' "'My ideas were completely upset. "'I could not see Ackroyd taking a hairdresser into his confidence "'and discussing the marriage of his niece and stepson with him. "'Ackroyd extends a genial patronage to the lower orders, "'but he has a very great sense of his own dignity.' I began to think that Poro couldn't be a hairdresser after all. To hide my confusion, I said the first thing that came into my head. What made you notice Ralph Patton? His good looks? No, not that alone, although he is unusually good-looking for an Englishman. What your lady novelist would call a Greek god. No, there was something about that young man that I did not understand. He said the last sentence in an amusing tone of voice, which made an indefinable impression upon me. It was as though he was summing up the boy by the light of some inner knowledge that I did not share. It was that impression that was left with me, for at that moment my sister's voice called me from the house. I went in. Caroline had her hat on, and she had evidently just come in from the village. She began without preamble. I met Mr. Ackroyd. Yes, I said. I stopped him, of course, but he seemed in a great hurry and anxious to get away. I have no doubt but that that was the case. He would feel towards Caroline much as he had felt towards Miss Gannett earlier in the day, perhaps more so. Caroline is less easy to shake off. I asked him at once about Ralph. He was absolutely astonished, had no idea the boy was down here. He actually said he thought I must have made a mistake. I, a mistake. Ridiculous. I said. He ought to have known you better. Then he went on to tell me that Ralph and Flora are engaged. I know that too, I interrupted, with modest pride. Who told you? Our new neighbor. Caroline visibly wavered for a second or two, much as a roulette ball might coyly hover between two numbers. Then she declined the tempting red herring. I told Mr. Ackroyd that Ralph was staying at the Three Boars. Caroline, I said. Do you never reflect that you might do a lot of harm with this habit of yours of repeating everything indiscriminately? Nonsense, said my sister. People ought to know things. I consider it my duty to tell them. Mr. Ackroyd was very grateful to me. Well, I said, for there was clearly more to come. I think he went straight off to the three boars, but if so, he didn't find Ralph there. No? No, because as I was coming back to the wood— "'Coming back to the wood?' I interrupted. Caroline had the grace to blush. "'It was such a lovely day,' she exclaimed. "'I thought it would make a little round. "'The woods with their autumnal tints are so perfect at this time of year. "'Caroline does not care a hang for woods at any time of the year. "'Normally she regards them as places where you get your feet damp "'and where all kinds of unpleasant things may drop on your head. "'No, it was good sound mongoose instinct which took her to our local wood.' It's the only place adjacent to the village of King's Abbot where you can talk with a young woman unseen by the whole of the village. It adjoins the park of Fernley. Well, I said, go on. As I say, I was just coming back through the wood when I heard voices. Caroline paused. Yes. One was Ralph Patton's. I knew it at once. The other was a girl's. Of course, I didn't mean to listen. Oh, of course not. I interjected, with patent sarcasm, which was, however, wasted on Caroline. But I simply couldn't help overhearing. 
The girl said something. I didn't quite catch what it was, and Ralph answered. He sounded very angry. "'My dear girl,' he said, "'don't you realize that it is quite on the cards "'the old man will cut me off with a shilling? "'He's been pretty fed up with me for the last few years. "'A little more would do it. "'And we need the dibs, my dear. "'I shall be a very rich man when the old fellow pops off. "'He's mean as they make him, but he's rolling in money, really. "'I don't want him to go altering his will. "'You leave it to me, and don't worry. "'Those are his exact words. "'I remember them perfectly. "'Unfortunately, just then I stepped on a dry twig or something, "'and they lowered their voices and moved away. "'I couldn't, of course, go rushing after them, "'so wasn't able to see who the girl was.' "'That must have been most vexing,' I said. "'I suppose, though, you hurried on to the three boars, "'felt faint, and went into the bar for a glass of brandy, "'and so were able to see if both the barmaids were on duty.' "'It wasn't a barmaid,' said Caroline, unhesitatingly. "'In fact, I'm almost sure that it was Flora Ackroyd, "'only—' "'Only that doesn't seem to make sense,' I agreed. "'But if it wasn't Flora, who could it have been?' "'Rapidly my sister ran over a list of maidens living in the neighborhood, "'with profuse reasons for and against. "'When she paused for breath, I murmured something about a patient and slipped out. "'I proposed to make my way to the three boors. "'It seemed likely that Ralph Patton would have returned there by now. "'I knew Ralph very well, better perhaps than anyone else in King's Abbot, "'for I had known his mother before him, "'and therefore I understood much in him that puzzled others.' He was, to a certain extent, the victim of heredity. He had not inherited his mother's fatal propensity for drink, but nevertheless he had in him a strain of weakness. As my new friend of this morning had declared, he was extraordinarily handsome, just on six feet, perfectly proportioned, with the easy grace of an athlete. He was dark, like his mother, with a handsome, sunburnt face always ready to break into a smile. Ralph Patton was one of those born to charm easily and without effort. He was self-indulgent and extravagant, with no veneration for anything on earth, but he was lovable nevertheless, and his friends were all devoted to him. Could I do anything with the boy? I thought I could. On inquiry at the three boors, I found that Captain Patton had just come in. I went up to his room and entered unannounced. For a moment, remembering what I had heard and seen, I was doubtful of my reception, but I need have had no misgivings. Wyatt Shepherd, glad to see you. He came forward to meet me, hand outstretched, a sunny smile lighting up his face. The one person I'm glad to see in this infernal place. I raised my eyebrows. What's the place been doing? He gave a vexed laugh. Ah, it's a long story. Things haven't been going well with me, doctor. But have a drink, won't you? "'Thanks,' I said. "'I will.' He pressed the bell, then, coming back, threw himself into a chair. "'Not to mince matters,' he said gloomily. "'I'm in the devil of a mess. In fact, I haven't the least idea what to do next.' "'What's the matter?' I asked sympathetically. "'Ah, it's my confounded stepfather.' "'What has he done?' "'Ah, it isn't what he's done yet, but what he's likely to do.' The bell was answered, and Ralph ordered the drinks. When the man had gone again, he sat hunched in the armchair, frowning to himself. "'Is it really serious?' I asked. He nodded. "'I'm fairly up against it this time,' he said soberly. The unusual ring of gravity in his voice 
told me that he spoke the truth. It took a good deal to make Ralph grave. In fact, he continued, I can't see my way ahead. I'm damned if I can. If I could help, I suggested diffidently, but he shook his head very decidedly. Oh, it's good of you, doctor, but I can't let you in on this. I've got to play a lone hand. He was silent a minute, and then repeated in a slightly different tone of voice. Yeah, yes, I've got to play a lone hand. We'll return with Chapter 4, right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special, limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now Chapter 4, Dinner at Fernley. It was just a few minutes before half past seven when I rang the front doorbell of Fernley Park. The door was opened with admirable promptitude by Parker, the butler. The night was such a fine one that I had preferred to come on foot. I stepped into the big square hall, and Parker relieved me of my overcoat. Just then, Ackroyd's secretary, a pleasant young fellow by the name of Raymond, passed through the hall on his way to Ackroyd's study, his hands full of papers. "'Good evening, doctor. Coming to dine? Or is this a professional call?' The last was in allusion to my black bag, which I had laid down on the oak chest." I explained that I expected a summons to a confinement case at any moment, and so had come out prepared for an emergency call. Raymond nodded and went on his way, calling over his shoulder, "'Go into the drawing-room. You know the way. The ladies will be down in a minute. I must just take these papers to Mr. Ackroyd, and I'll tell him you're here.' On Raymond's appearance, Parker had withdrawn, so I was alone in the hall. I settled my tie, glanced in a large mirror which hung there, and crossed to the door directly facing me, which was, as I knew, the door of the drawing-room. I noticed, just as I was turning the handle, a sound from within, the shutting down of a window. I took it to be. I noted it, I may say, quite mechanically, without attaching any importance to it at the time. 
I opened the door and walked in. As I did so, I almost collided with Mrs. Russell, who was just coming out. We both apologized. For the first time I found myself appraising the housekeeper and thinking what a handsome woman she must once have been. Indeed, as far as that goes, still was. Her dark hair was unstreaked with gray, and when she had a color, as she had at this minute, the stern quality of her looks was not so apparent. Quite subconsciously I wondered whether she had been out, for she was breathing hard, as though she had been running. "'I'm afraid of a few minutes early,' I said. "'Oh, I don't think so. It's gone half-past seven, Dr. Shepard.' She paused a minute before saying, "'I didn't know you were expected to dinner tonight. Mr. Ackroyd didn't mention it.' I received a vague impression that my dining there displeased her in some way, but I couldn't imagine why. "'How's the knee doing?' I inquired. "'Much the same, thank you, doctor. "'I must be going now. "'Mrs. Ackroyd will be down in a moment. "'I I only came in here to see if the flowers were all right.' "'She passed quickly out of the room. "'I strolled to the window, "'wondering at her evident desire to justify her presence in the room. "'As I did so, I saw what, of course, "'I might have known all the time had I troubled to give my mind to it, "'namely, that the windows were long French ones opening on the terrace. "'The sound I'd heard, therefore, could not have been that of a window being shut down. "'Quite idly, and more to distract my mind from painful thoughts than for any other reason, "'I amused myself by trying to guess what could have caused the sound in question. "'Coals on the fire? "'No, that was not the kind of noise at all. "'A drawer of the bureau pushed in. "'No, not that.' Then my eye was caught by what, I believe, is called a silver table, the lid of which lifts, and through the glass of which you can see the contents. I crossed over to it, studying the things. There were one or two pieces of old silver, a baby shoe belonging to King Charles I, some Chinese jade figures, and quite a number of African implements and curios. Wanting to examine one of the jade figures more closely, I lifted the lid. It slipped through my fingers and fell. "'At once I recognized the sound I'd heard. "'It was this same table lid being shut down gently and carefully. "'I repeated the action once or twice for my own satisfaction. "'Then I lifted the lid to scrutinize the contents more closely. "'I was still bending over the open silver table "'when Flora Ackroyd came into the room. "'Quite a lot of people do not like Flora Ackroyd, "'but nobody can help admiring her. "'And to her friends she can be very charming.' The first thing that strikes you about her is her extraordinary fairness. She has the real Scandinavian pale gold hair. Her eyes are blue, blue as the waters of a Norwegian fjord, and her skin is cream and roses. She has square, boyish shoulders and slight hips, and to a jaded medical man it is very refreshing to come across such perfect health. A simple, straightforward English girl. I may be old-fashioned, "'but I think the genuine article takes a lot of beating.' "'Flora joined me by the silver table "'and expressed heretical doubts "'as to King Charles I ever having worn the baby shoe. "'And anyway,' continued Miss Flora, "'all this making a fuss about things "'because someone wore or used them "'seems to me all nonsense. "'They're not wearing or using them now. "'The pen that George Eliot wrote, "'The Mill on the Floss with, that sort of thing. "'Well,' "'It's only just a pen, after all. "'If you're really keen on George Eliot, "'why not get the mill on the floss in a cheap edition and read it?' 
"'I suppose you never read such old, out-of-date stuff, Miss Flora? "'You're wrong, Dr. Shepard. "'I love the mill on the floss. "'I was rather pleased to hear it. "'The things young women read nowadays and profess to enjoy "'positively frighten me. "'You haven't congratulated me yet, Dr. Shepard,' said Flora. "'Haven't you heard?' "'She held out her left hand. "'On the third finger of it was an exquisitely set single pearl.' "'I'm going to marry Ralph, you know,' she went on. "'Uncle is very pleased. "'It keeps me in the family, you see.' "'I took both her hands in mine. "'My dear,' I said, "'I hope you'll be very happy.' "'We've been engaged for about a month,' "'continued Flora in her cool voice. "'But it was only announced yesterday. "'Uncle is going to do up a cross-stones "'and give it to us to live in, "'and we're going to pretend to farm. "'Really, we shall hunt all the winter.' "'town for the season, and then go yachting. "'I love the sea. "'And, of course, I shall take a great interest in the parish affairs "'and attend all the mother's meetings.' "'Just then Mrs. Ackroyd rustled in, "'full of apologies for being late. "'I'm sorry to say I detest Mrs. Ackroyd. "'She is all chains and teeth and bones. "'A most unpleasant woman. "'She has small, pale, flinty blue eyes, "'and however gushing her words may be, "'Those eyes of hers always remain coldly speculative. "'I went across to her, leaving Flora by the window. "'She gave me a handful of assorted knuckles and rings to squeeze "'and began talking volubly. "'Had I heard about Flora's engagement? "'So suitable in every way. "'The dear young things had fallen in love at first sight. "'Such a perfect pair! "'He so dark, and she so fair! "'I can't tell you, my dear Dr. Shepherd, "'the relief to a mother's heart!' Mrs. Ackroyd sighed, a tribute to her mother's heart, whilst her eyes remained shrewdly observant of me. "'I was wondering,' she said, "'you are such an old friend of dear Rogers. We know how much he trusts to your judgment. So difficult for me, in my position, as poor Cecil's widow. But there are so many tiresome things, settlements, you know, all that. I fully believe that Roger intends to make settlements upon dear Flora. But as you know—' "'He is just a little peculiar about money. "'Very, very usual, I've heard, "'amongst men who are captains of industry. "'I wondered, you know, "'if you could just sound him on the subject. "'Flora is so fond of you. "'We feel you are quite an old friend, "'although we've really only known you "'just over two years.' "'Mrs. Ackroyd's eloquence was cut short "'as the drawing-room door opened once more. "'I was pleased at the interruption. "'I hate interfering in other people's affairs.' "'and I had not the least intention of tackling Ackroyd "'on the subject of Flora's settlements. "'In another moment I should have been forced "'to tell Mrs. Ackroyd as much. "'You know Major Blunt, don't you, doctor?' "'Yes, indeed,' I said. "'A lot of people know Hector Blunt, at least by repute. "'He has shot more wild animals in unlikely places "'than any man living, I suppose. "'When you mention him, people say, "'Blunt, you don't mean the big game man, do you?' "'His friendship with Ackroyd has always puzzled me a little. "'The two men are so totally dissimilar. "'Hector Blunt is perhaps five years Ackroyd's junior. "'They made friends early in life, "'and though their ways have diverged, the friendship still holds. "'About once in two years, Blunt spends a fortnight at Fernley, "'and an immense animal's head, with an amazing number of horns, "'which fixes you with a glazed stare as soon as you come inside the front door, "'is a permanent reminder of the friendship.' Blunt had entered the room now, with his own peculiar, deliberate, yet soft-footed tread. 
"'He is a man of medium height, "'sturdily and rather stockily built. "'His face is almost mahogany-colored "'and is peculiarly expressionless. "'He has gray eyes that give the impression "'of always watching something "'that is happening very far away. "'He talks little, "'and what he does say is said jerkily, "'as though the words were forced out of him unwillingly. "'He said now, "'How are you, Shepherd?" "'in his usual abrupt fashion, "'and then stood squarely in front of the fireplace, "'looking over our heads, "'as though he saw something very interesting happening in Timbuktu. "'Major Blunt,' said Flora, "'I wish you'd tell me about these African things. "'I'm sure you know what they all are. "'I've heard Hector Blunt described as a woman-hater, "'but I noticed that he'd joined Flora at the silver table "'with what might be described as alacrity. "'They bent over it together.' "'I was afraid Mrs. Ackward would begin talking about settlements again, "'so I made a few hurried remarks about the new sweet pea. "'I knew there was a new sweet pea because the Daily Mail had told me so that morning. "'Mrs. Ackward knows nothing about horticulture, "'but she is the kind of woman who likes to appear well-informed about the topics of the day, "'and she, too, reads the Daily Mail. "'We were able to converse quite intelligently until Ackward and his secretary joined us, "'and immediately afterwards Parker announced dinner.' "'My place at the table was between Mrs. Ackroyd and Flora. "'Blunt was on Mrs. Ackroyd's other side, "'and Geoffrey Raymond next to him. "'Dinner was not a cheerful affair. "'Ackroyd was visibly preoccupied. "'He looked wretched and ate next to nothing. "'Mrs. Ackroyd, Raymond, and I kept the conversation going. "'Flora seemed affected by her uncle's depression, "'and Blunt relapsed into his usual taciturnity.' Immediately after dinner, Ackroyd slipped his arm through mine and led me off to his study. "'Once we've had a coffee, we shan't be disturbed again,' he explained. I told Raymond to see to it that we shouldn't be interrupted. I studied him quietly without appearing to do so. He was clearly under the influence of some strong excitement. For a minute or two he paced up and down the room. Then, as Parker entered with the coffee tray, he sank into an armchair in front of the fire.' The study was a comfortable apartment. Bookshelves lined one wall of it. The chairs were big and covered in dark blue leather. A large desk stood by the window and was covered with papers neatly docketed and filed. On the round table were various magazines and sporting papers. "'I had a return of that pain after food lately,' remarked Ackroyd casually as he helped himself to coffee. "'You must give me some more of those tablets of yours.' "'It struck me that he was anxious to convey the impression "'that our conference was a medical one. "'I played it up accordingly. "'I thought as much. I brought some up with me. "'Good man! Hand them over now. "'They're in my bag in the hall. I'll get them.' "'Ackroyd stopped me. "'Don't you trouble. Parker will get them. "'Bring in the doctor's bag, will you, Parker?' "'Very good, sir.' "'Parker withdrew. "'As I was about to speak, Ackroyd threw up his hand.' "'Not yet. Wait. "'Don't you see him in such a state of nerves "'that I can hardly contain myself?' "'I saw that plainly enough, "'and I was very uneasy. "'All sorts of forebodings assailed me. "'Ackroyd spoke again almost immediately. "'Make certain that window's closed, will you?' "'He asked. "'Somewhat surprised, I got up and went to it. "'It was not a French window, "'but one of the ordinary sash type. "'The heavy blue velvet curtains were drawn in front of it, "'but the window itself was open at the top. "'Parker re-entered the room with my bag "'while I was still at the window. "'That's all right,' I said, "'emerging again into the room. 
"'You've put the latch across?' "'Yes, yes. What's the matter with you, Ackroyd?' "'The door had just closed behind Parker, or I would not have put the question. "'Ackroyd waited just a minute before replying. "'I'm in hell,' he said slowly, after a minute. "'No, don't bother with those damn tablets. I only said that for Parker. "'Servants are so curious. Come here and sit down. The door is closed, too, isn't it?' "'Yes. Nobody can overhear. Don't be uneasy. "'Shepherd, nobody knows what I've gone through in the last twenty-four hours. "'If a man's house ever fell in ruins about him, mine has about me. "'This business of Ralph's is the last straw. "'But we won't talk about that now. It's the other. The other. "'I don't know what to do about it, and I've got to make up my mind soon. "'So what's the trouble?' "'Ackroyd remained silent for a minute or two. "'He seemed curiously averse to begin. "'When he did speak, the question he asked came as a complete surprise. "'It was the last thing I expected. "'Shepherd, you attended Ashley Farrar's in his last illness, didn't you?' "'Yes, I did.' "'He seemed to find even greater difficulty in framing his next question. "'Did you never suspect? "'Did it ever enter your head that, well, he might have been poisoned?' "'I was silent for a minute or two. "'Then I made up my mind what to say. "'Roger Ackroyd was not Caroline. "'I'll tell you the truth,' I said. "'At the time, I had no suspicion whatever. "'But since, well, it was mere idle talk on my sister's part "'that first put that idea into my head. "'Since then I haven't been able to get it out again. "'But mind you, I have no foundation whatever for that suspicion.' "'He was poisoned,' said Ackroyd. "'He spoke in a dull, heavy voice. "'Who by?' I asked sharply. "'His wife. "'How do you know that? "'She told me so herself. "'When?' "'Yesterday. "'My God, yesterday. "'It seems ten years ago.' "'I waited a minute, and then he went on. "'You understand, Shepherd. "'I'm telling you this in confidence. "'It's to go no further. "'I want your advice.' "'I can't carry the whole weight by myself. "'As I said just now, "'I don't know what to do.' "'Can you tell me the whole story?' "'I said. "'I'm still in the dark. "'How did Mrs. Farrars come to make this confession to you?' "'It's like this. Three months ago I asked Mrs. Farrars to marry me. "'She refused. "'I asked her again, and she consented. "'But she refused to allow me to make the engagement public "'until her year of mourning was up.' "'Yesterday I called upon her, "'pointed out that a year and three weeks "'had now elapsed since her husband's death, "'and that there could be no further objection "'to making the engagement public property. "'I had noticed that she had been "'very strange in her manner for some days. "'Now, suddenly, without the least warning, "'she broke down completely. "'She she told me everything. "'Her hatred of her brood of a husband, "'her growing love for me, "'and the dreadful means she had taken. "'Poison!' "'My God! It was cold-blooded murder!' "'I saw the repulsion, the horror in Ackroyd's face. "'So Mrs. Ferraris must have seen it. "'Ackroyd is not the type of the great lover "'who can forgive all for love's sake. "'He is fundamentally a good citizen. "'All that was sound and wholesome and law-abiding in him "'must have turned from her utterly in that moment of revelation. "'Yes,' he went on, in a low, monotonous voice. "'She confessed everything.' It seems that there is one person who has known all along, 
who has been blackmailing her for huge sums. It was the strain of that that drove her nearly mad. Who is the man? Suddenly, before my eyes, there rose the picture of Ralph Patton and Mrs. Ferrars side by side, their heads so close together. I felt a momentary throb of anxiety. Supposing! Oh, but surely that was impossible. I remember the frankness of Ralph's greeting that very afternoon. Absurd! She wouldn't tell me his name, said Ackroyd slowly. As a matter of fact, she didn't actually say that it was a man. But of course. Of course, I agreed. It must have been a man. And you've no suspicion at all? For answer, Ackroyd groaned and dropped his head into his hands. Ugh, it can't be, he said. I'm mad even to think of such a thing. No, I won't even admit to you the wild suspicion that crossed my mind. I'll tell you this much, though. Something she said made me think that the person in question might be actually among my household. But that can't be so. I must have misunderstood her. What did you say to her? I asked. What could I say? She saw, of course, the awful shock it had been to me. And then there was the question, what was my duty in the matter? She had made me, now, an accessory after the fact. She saw all that, I think, quicker than I did. I was stunned, you know. She asked me for twenty-four hours, made me promise to do nothing till the end of that time, and she steadfastly refused to give me the name of the scoundrel who had been blackmailing her. I suppose she was afraid that I might go straight off and hammer him, and then the fat would have been in the fire as far as she was concerned. She told me that I should hear from her before twenty-four hours had passed. My God, I swear to you, Shepherd, that it never entered my head what she meant to do. Suicide? And I drove her to it. No, no, I said. Don't take an exaggerated view of things. The responsibility for her death does not lie at your door. The question is, what am I to do now? The poor lady's dead. Why rake up past trouble? I rather agree with you, I said. But there's another point. How am I to get hold of that scoundrel who drove her to death as surely as if he'd killed her? He knew of the first crime, and he fastened on to it like some obscene vulture. She's paid the penalty. Is he to go scot-free? I see, I said slowly. You want to hunt him down. It would mean a lot of publicity, you know. Yes, I've thought of that. I've zigzagged to and fro in my mind. I agree with you that the villain ought to be punished, but the cost has got to be reckoned. Ackroyd rose and walked up and down. Presently he sank into the chair again. Look here, Shepherd. Suppose we leave it like this. If no word comes from her, we'll let the dead things lie. What do you mean by word coming from her? I asked curiously. I have the strongest impression that somewhere or somehow she must have left a message for me before she went. I can't argue about it, but there it is. I shook my head. She left no letter or word of any kind. I asked. Shepherd, I'm convinced that she did. And more, I've a feeling that by deliberately choosing death, she wanted the whole thing to come out, if only to be revenged on the man who drove her to desperation. I believe that if I could have seen her then, she would have told me his name and bid me go for him for all I was worth. He looked at me. 
"'You don't believe in impressions?' "'Oh, yes, I do, in a sense. "'If, as you put it, word should come from her.' "'I broke off. "'The door opened noiselessly, "'and Parker entered with a salver "'on which were some letters. "'The evening post, sir,' he said, "'handing the salver to Ackroyd. "'Then he collected the coffee cups and withdrew. "'My attention, diverted for a moment, "'came back to Ackroyd. "'He was staring like a man turned to stone "'at a long blue envelope.' "'the other letters he had let drop to the ground. "'Her writing,' he said in a whisper. "'She must have gone out and posted it last night, just before.' "'He ripped open the envelope and drew out a thick enclosure. "'Then he looked up sharply. "'Are you sure you shut the window?' he said. "'Quite sure,' I said, surprised. "'Why?' "'All this evening I've had a queer feeling of being watched, spied upon. "'What's that?' He turned sharply. So did I. We both had the impression of hearing the latch of the door give ever so slightly. I went across to it and opened it. There was no one there. Nerves, murmured Ackroyd to himself. He unfolded the thick sheets of paper and read aloud in a low voice. My dear, my very dear Roger, a life calls for a life. I see that. I saw it in your face this afternoon. "'so I am taking the only road open to me. "'I leave to you the punishment of the person "'who has made my life a hell upon earth for the last year. "'I would not tell you the name this afternoon, "'but I propose to write it to you now. "'I have no children or near relations to be spared, "'so do not fear publicity. "'If you can, Roger, my very dear Roger, "'forgive me the wrong I meant to do you, "'since when the time came, I could not do it after all.' Ackroyd, his finger on the sheet to turn it over, paused. "'Shepherd, forgive me, but I must read this alone,' he said, unsteadily. "'It was meant for my eyes, and my eyes only.' He put the letter in the envelope and laid it on the table. "'Later, when I'm alone.' "'No!' I cried impulsively. "'Read it now!' Ackroyd stared at me in some surprise. "'I beg your pardon?' "'I beg your pardon,' I said, reddening. "'I do not mean read it aloud to me, "'but read it through whilst I'm still here.' "'Ackroyd shook his head. "'No, I'd rather wait. "'But for some reason, obscure to myself, "'I continued to urge him. "'At least read the name of the man,' I said. "'Now Ackroyd is essentially pig-headed. "'The more you urge him to do something, "'the more determined he is not to do it. "'All my arguments were in vain. "'The letter had been brought in at twenty minutes to nine. "'It was just on ten minutes to nine when I left him, "'the letter still unread. "'I hesitated with my hand on the door-handle, "'looking back and wondering if there was anything I had left undone. "'I could think of nothing. "'With a shake of the head, I passed out and closed the door behind me. "'I was startled by seeing the figure of Parker close at hand. "'He looked embarrassed and it occurred to me that he might have been listening at the door. What a fat, smug, oily face the man had, and surely there was something decidedly shifty in his eye. "'Mr. Ackroyd particularly does not want to be disturbed,' I said coldly. "'He told me to tell you so.' Uh, "'Quite so, sir. I fancied, I fancied I heard the bell ring.' This was such a palpable untruth that I did not trouble to reply. Preceding me to the hall— Parker helped me out with my overcoat, and I stepped out into the night. The moon was overcast, and everything seemed very dark and still. 
The village church clock chimed nine o'clock as I passed through the lodge gates. I turned to the left toward the village, and almost cannoned into a man coming in the opposite direction. "'Is this the way to Fernley Park, mister?' asked the stranger in a hoarse voice. I looked at him. He was wearing a hat pulled down over his eyes, and his coat collar turned up. I could see little or nothing of his face, but he seemed a young fellow. The voice was rough and uneducated. "'These are the lodge gates here,' I said. "'Thank you, mister.' He paused, and then added, quite unnecessarily, "'I'm a stranger in these parts, you see.' He went on, passing through the gates as I turned to look after him. The odd thing was that his voice reminded me of someone's voice that I knew, but whose it was I could not think. Ten minutes later I was home once more. Caroline was full of curiosity to know why I had returned so early. I had to make up a slightly fictitious account of the evening in order to satisfy her, and that I had an uneasy feeling that she saw through my transparent device. At ten o'clock I rose, yawned, and suggested bed. Caroline acquiesced. It was Friday night, and on Friday night I wind the clocks. I did it as usual, whilst Caroline satisfied herself that the servants had locked up the kitchen properly. It was a quarter past ten as we went up the stairs. I had just reached the top when the telephone rang in the hall below. "'Mrs. Bates,' said Caroline immediately. "'I'm afraid so,' I said ruefully. I ran down the stairs and took up the receiver. "'What?' "'Certainly. I'll come at once.' I ran upstairs, caught up my bag, and stuffed a few extra dressings into it. "'Parker telephoning!' I shouted to Caroline. "'From Fernley. They've just found Roger Ackroyd murdered.' Thanks for joining us for Chapters 3 and 4 of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd by Agatha Christie. Things are heating up. If you enjoy our stories here, please do stop and send us a review for 1001 Stories for the Road. We appreciate that very much. Until next week, Sunday night at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.